You're listening to Climate Champions. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. In this next series, we're honing in on the buzz of activity in the built environment sector leading up to COP26, the International Climate Conference, which will take place in Glasgow in early November. Thank you to ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network, for providing several of the questions we'll be asking today. So my simple line to any client for any building in the education, uh, workplace or residential sector is, unless you build a low carbon, intelligent, efficient, smart, enjoyable, flexible, long life building, you will have an asset that might be worth nothing by the time you've finished it. And that you can't look at this year's standards, you've got to look at 2030. And if you're looking at 2030, you've got to look at 2040 and think that way. Today, we are bringing you a Royal Institute of British Architects special. First, we speak to Simon Alford, just three weeks after he has taken up the presidency of the RIBA. I first met Simon when researching my book on the London Olympics over a decade ago. Sustainability was definitely a niche topic then, and no one in the built environment was talking about climate emergency. Today, we are speaking to Simon about his advocacy role at the RIBA in the run-up to COP26, as well as how his practice, AHMM, ranked number four in the AJ100 with a permanent staff of almost 500, promotes sustainable design in the delivery of projects. Our second guest will be Gary Clark, principal in HOK's London office and chair of the RIBA Sustainable Futures Group and lead author of the RIBA 2030 Climate Challenge Targets. This week, the RIBA, together with Architects Declare, released an important report called Built for the Environment. The RIBA and Architects Declare will take this report to governments at COP26 to highlight the potentially transformative role the built environment can play in addressing climate change. The report is an ambitious call to arms with many detailed recommendations about the policies and regulations and actions needed to make meaningful change. It's available now on architecture.com. We'll put a link in the show notes. And tellingly, the cover image is a project in Rwanda, the Rwanda Institute for Conservation Agriculture by Mass Design Group. This is a report with global ambitions, and at 60 pages, it's absolutely packed with useful information and references, and the summary recommendations are just three pages. I would urge everyone to download it and have a close read. Simon, it's great to have you with us today. Would you outline the background to the report, who exactly your audience is, and summarize the main recommendations? Uh, it's very nice to be here, um, and thanks for the invitation. Um, when I was president-elect, I was approached by an old friend, Andrew War of War Thistleton, about yeah. Architects Declare, of whom we, AHMM, are family signatories, about an idea that we should do something to bring the, not the architecture profession, but the built environment profession and construction industry, you know, under one umbrella, try and bring them together. And, you know, uh, he and Maria Smith, who's both Architects Declare and RIBA Council, 
and I sort of got together and had a chat about it. And then I took it to the RIBA with the idea, um, under their guidance and leadership, that we should, the RIBA should be a generous and open host. And that this is a global challenge. It should be a general, generous and open host to many debates in, in the built environment. And that if the RIBA could host it, because it has the facilities and, and the platforms to do so, as an RIBA and Architects Declare uh, joint summit, it could then be open and global. So the key recommendations were governments to ensure environmental targets are science-based and fair. Now, every meeting I go to, targets are important. Even if we fail to meet them, if we can get out and try and achieve them, we avoid a, a smokescreen of activity without any end product. And actually looking at on a consumption basis, you know, think about it differently and get very focused on actual carbon measurement. Let's start thinking of absolute emissions of a project. You know, there's an old idea, can a, can a 1,500 square metre school be a 1,000 square metre school if it's better programmed? You know, so I think it gets us out of just setting targets as dumb things, they can become sophisticated things. Because we do need to fundamentally reboot what we're doing. And that's a big ask, let's not be clear. And, you know, some people have said to me, we're at a tipping point where perhaps the industry is getting ahead of the guidance and regulations, um, which is may or may not be true. But if, it's, if, it, if it is true, it's guidance and regulations that have actually dragged us this far and a cultural shift. So five years ago, if you talk to someone about making a Bream outstanding building, they'd be saying, well, now we'd say that is just the starting point. But five years ago, well, what might it cost? Do we need to do it? The cultural change of the last two years related to lockdown, you know, and the shock factor is, you know, everyone now recognises that this is something we need to address. And a developed relatively wealthy nation like the UK needs to, you know, attempt to be part of the leadership of it. There's an arrogance to say you can lead something and the world's problems are different and the UK's problems are diff different and London's problems and funding is different to the rest of the UK. But, you know, the UK, I think, is, is obliged as, as a G7 economy to help lead it, not for heroic reasons, but just because I think it's, it's, it's an obligation. And the next one was information to be openly and widely shared. I was at a Chatham House event yesterday, organised by Mike Cook of Bureau Happold. There we were saying that one of the problems is, if you share the mistakes you've learned, you're actually exposing yourself to some kind of criticism and potentially some kind of indemnity issue. It's absolutely absurd. So I was talking to an architect in their office. I won't na name her, but she was saying, I said, oh, what's that baffled? She goes, oh, it's because our... CLT building is not thermally massive enough and we actually got a problem that it's not working that well. But we can't tell anyone, of course, and we joked about it. But the point is, she could tell me, because I, I, I think that's great. She's told me, I now have another example of let's not assume because it's CLT, it's good. You know, any material has to be worked on and learned. And we are always in a learning curve. So I think we do need government guidance and government help to drag us all, even if we're enthusiastically dragging, we are dragging our feet in an ever-acquiring kind of mud of mixed information. And we need to make knowledge readily available, shared, accurate targets, 
There will always be some level of interpretation in targets, but at least it means we can find some pretty common ground or common ways of measuring you know, carbon, CO2, meter squared, kilowatt hours. They're useful because without them, we've really got nothing. We've got a kind of wrap up of, oh, well, it's, it's a good building because it's got a green roof and it's got some timber in it. Must yeah, be OK. Some, some sustainable features. Exactly. Yeah, we, we definitely need targets that we can try to measure against. The recommendations, as you've just outlined them, they're very high level. But I think if people will go and read the report, there's actually a lot of detail under that. And one of the things I thought was excellent is that you've described the built environment as a system and how all the different players are interrelated and how you know we need to bring change to the system. But the question I have for you is, you know, this report follows on the report of the RIBA's Ethics and Sustainable Development Commission just a couple of years ago, which was also an ambitious report with a lot of recommendations. And I'm not sure what the tangible outcomes have been. So how is this report different? How are you going to get traction with this? I, mean, I think the RBA 2030 document is a great document. It's yeah. really simple, it's really clear, and it's really understandable. And it's familiar now to all kinds of clients. So I think there are different kinds of things. That's a really great working document. This is a bigger document written really in the context of upcoming COP26 to take to government and say, if you want to bother digging in, We've got lots of evidence to back this report. But if you don't, take that, those high-level things and help us achieve your targets. These aren't our targets. This is UK government targets, you know. And if they're going to achieve them, and construction say 40% of the carbon um, emissions for which the UK is responsible, we've got to address it, they've got to address it, and they've got to help us with regulations, which regulations in a good way give us slightly more level playing field. Otherwise, those clients who are making the best buildings, I believe, because I'm an optimistic, they'll actually get the value back. But there's a moment where they might panic in the market. You know, we're spending a lot more to make this building. If the regs are making everyone get there, then there's a sort of levelling off. So as a spokesperson for the profession, both in the national media and to government, uh, what media outreach, uh, outreach and political advocacy will you do to promote the recommendations of the report? My view is that the, the profession needs to lead this because it's the profession who build buildings, not the RIBA. It's the construction industry that needs to lead this and it's our clients who need to lead this. What the RIBA needs to do is save all of us researching in isolation on our own and actually capture best practice and share it back to us and give us the toolkits to go out and promote this. But I think it's at COP26 that one could get simple messages across to government. And from what I understand, COP26 is a big event where a lot of decisions are made beforehand or after. And it's more of a, a piece of grandstanding in the media, which is also important. So, you know, after the ministerial shuffle, we've written to all the relevant ministers and asked to meet them. And I think our job as the Institute is to help the construction industry and the profession by setting targets, gathering exemplars, talking about reports, adding knowledge um, and, and supporting practices as they move forward. I'd like us to develop some kind of best practice carbon data. I'd like us to be better at sharing, which is a problem. 
Jack Pringle and I, chair of board, have talked about, you know, a big carbon data pool for the industry that we could gather stuff together. So it's not my data and your data and someone else's data. And again, we might be 10 or 15% out in how we're measuring, but we'll find some common ground of best practice. And then we have to get through that problem of actually sharing out best practice that's gone wrong so that we can all learn from each other's mistakes. Because otherwise, we are on a, on a dramatic and steep learning curve. That Some of the buildings that I'm involved with now as an architect outside the RIBA, we're recognising that by the time we build them, the structure we thought we were going to build, build them of might have changed for a very good reason, because one material might have accelerated its decarbonisation at a faster speed than another. Um, that has a contractual implication. You know, it has a, a financial modelling implication. So, so we need to be sharing this information and rather than just, you know, talking about it on very important podcasts, but if we we're actually sharing it back to the profession via the Institute, that's, you know, that, that's a way of building on the informal networks that we all have and the formal ones that ACAN or Architects Declare. My second question relates to transport. Um, so the report uh, has got excellent charts showing how 28% of emissions from the built in, uh, come from the built environment from operational emissions and another 10% uh, from embodied impacts. But there's 23% of emissions come from transport and that's even more if you consider the manufacturing of cars. But the report doesn't have very much about how buildings and transport work as a system. There's not much discussion of density and how that relates to transport. Um, one of the case studies is some uh, suburban housing at Bryn, uh, Bryn Bagel uh, in uh, uh, Bridge End. Uh, that's got solar, lots of solar panels, but parking for two cars out the front. Um, in North America, a lot of the discourse around a sustainable built environment uh, is increasingly uh, is about increasing density to reduce transport emissions. Um, why is that not really on the radar here within architecture? I suppose that with any report, there's always an area where you could say that you know, that could have been covered too. On transport, it's, a, it's, a, it's absolutely vital. It again goes into an idea about uh, the scale of successful communities and, and, and bigger cities. It then goes into the idea also, though, of personal freedoms. Two cars versus no cars. Well, you know, maybe if you live in Bridge End, a car, because there isn't adequate infrastructure, is a vital part of your life. Maybe if you live in central London, it's a different piece. I happen to be about to have to dispose of a car which the government wants encouraged to buy, me to buy because it's diesel. It's only done 40,000 miles over 12 years, and I'm pretty certain that disposing of it and buy, buying an electric car is going to actually have more embodied carbon in it than if I kept it and did 4,000 miles a year, although I recognise there's a pollutant issue. That's exactly the kind of complex issue that it's difficult to get right that we need to talk about to rather than just kind of blandly say we shouldn't have cars or they should all be electric immediately. But I'd like to discuss these things. You know what I mean? I think it's, it's important to get it out there and have differences of opinion you know, I've now got agents telling me, well, can we make one floor of the building CLT? I'm like, well, why? It's not, it's not, it's not particularly intelligent. But they now think it's a marketing piece, right? Which on one level is progress. But on another level, we could be producing buildings that aren't particularly low carbon, but they appear to be low carbon. 
It's a minefield. It's very, very complicated. And I, I think your diesel car example, you know, is, I mean, there are many myriad examples in, in buildings similar. I have one more big picture question before we come back to COP26. So Michael Gove is the new housing minister, and his first move was to put on hold plans to move the UK discretionary planning system to a more zonal system that often has better planning outcomes. What's your view of how planning should be reformed? Planning is a highly complex and expensive democratic activity. And in that sense, it's not actually available to all because it's highly complicated and expensive. In principle, the idea of a more local response, if it wasn't driven by style, but was driven by an attitude to placemaking, is something I could support. If you look at pretty much the edge of every town or village, that's where you see, in my view, the worst kind of cookie cutter development, dropping individual houses on a road network. Um, you know, it's sort of uh, detached at all costs. It's a kind of uniform misery. It's presented as what people want. Um, I actually think there are better models. We are working as a practice on other models, which are about connecting those places to those towns and villages so that the schools aren't depopulating and closing. So new communities can bolster, engage with old communities and become extensions of those communities rather than separate satellites relying on the, the two-car scenario that George was talking about. And I think, you know, he's also, Michael Gove's also been called, you know, the levelling up uh, minister. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a cultural change. He's a big, you know, he's upset architects in the past, but we move on. He's, I think he is a big ideas person and he's known to be good at delivering. So I think in a sense, that puts the environment right up the agenda. Whether you like him or not, I think it shows that they're putting a real heavy weight into that post. That's got to be good news. Even if it leads to more debate, that's good news. Mastering sustainable design takes time, upskilling and learning a lot of technical information, researching different materials, working out ways to design that work aesthetically while taking on board a lot of constraints. So there's, there's, there's various sticks like the competence criteria, the 2030 challenge. Um, what about carrots? Uh, how can how can the RIBA support architects' fees so there's time to work on, to do the extra work that sustainability requires? We all like carrots, um, but I don't think there would be a fixed fee scale. The RIBA has a recommended fee scale, and I'll be very brutally honest to you, and understandably so, in a difficult time like we've had in the last two years, unfortunately, for obvious reasons of cash flow, um, fees have been dropping. Someone said to me, well, there should be a compact of architects who won't drop their fees. I can assure you there'll be a compact of architects who will sign up to not dropping their fees, but because of an economic pressure, because they're trying to pay for their staff properly, they will drop their fees. Personally, I think if we build up architectural confidence, we project ourselves more strongly to government and the public, then they will be prepared to pay more fees because they will see more value in architecture. If someone's seeking to get architecture on the cheap, then they're probably not the client you want. What the RIBA can do though, is again, is mean that you're not doing all that research you're, talk you're talking about because you're building on the back of, of a body of knowledge. I have a question for you about the 2030 climate challenge targets and their revision over the summer. I think they are minimum targets. I think, uh, you know, 
you can challenge particular pieces of it. There was a piece of work done to kind of set, try and benchmark these across with, with, with feedback and experience. But I think we've got to say they're minimums and they can, they've been reviewed um, in one way. They can be reviewed again as we move forward. But I think there is a danger that we set things that become beyond, beyond the bar and, and, and that people don't get there. So I know you can get there. I've personally, you know, I think on, on an office building, the lowest we're getting to is uh, 500 kilograms a carbon a meter squared. But I have to say, that's employing some of the best consultants around in an extraordinarily expensive journey of research that George was just talking about. Um, and, yeah. and, and we think it's very difficult to get much below that in the world we live in now, but maybe we'll get lower in three or four years by the time we build that building. And we're also saying we've got to continuously monitor because something we think is lower might go higher. One last question on the RIBA. It relates to the vibrancy of Portland Place during your term as president. Um, there have been numerous thorny debates recently, mostly online, around topics such as demolition, greenwashing, aviation is a big one. Could these be publicly debated at the RIBA? How do you see your House of Architecture? That, that's how I see the House of Architecture. I think the Architects Declare and the RIBA um, Summit is, is an exact example of that. It's accessible, it will be on the uh, internet, it will be globally accessible. So to me, that virtual thing becomes incredibly important. I do think, and not just because I'm a Londoner, very simple view on 66 Portland Place. We've got, I don't know, 920 years left of a 999 year lease. We can only use that building as the RIBA. It is not an asset we can sell. So we need to make that building properly accessible, full of architects and the construction industry debating issues. Because I think what that means is we will actually learn and we will avoid the problem of comfortable mantras, which is, you know, we've got to build 400,000 homes and we must build them using system building. That's all the estates we're de demolishing um, since the Second World War. Because speed and unit numbers were the only target, not place or quality of home. And they were done by very committed people. But you know, yes, the RBA should absolutely be a place where that happens. In fact, Louis Hellman did a cartoon of, of 66 as a fun palace with a queue of people going in there. That might be a little bit optimistic, but I do think that's how it should be. It was when I was younger that Tuesday night were an amazing series of lectures by you know young architects, old architects, awarding architects. The ground, lower ground, the Jarvis and the first floor, to me should be packed full of architectural debate and discourse. That building, rather than be a place for, for sort of dentists and soap salesmen, should be a place where actually, when you go in there, you will discover things that you didn't realize you were interested in. Basically, the government needs intellectual property, it needs ideas to drive things forward. So we should be capturing best practice and ideas and debates so that when they're talking about how we should redo planning or how do we retrofit cities, we're, you know, we've got discourse that is actually bringing that to the attention of uh, the public you know, and government. Two years isn't very long, Simon, to make this all happen. <laughs> um, but I think it's a, it's a cultural shift. There's a crisis, you know, carbon, COVID, um, you know, access into the profession, you know, the face of the profession, 
um, affordability, diversity, and then there's cash. And if you put the two together, there is a chance. So I, this isn't what I've talked about. It's not my vision alone. I happen to stand at a particular moment in time. If you reboot the Institute as a more open force that harnesses the intelligence of its members in the construction industry, it will naturally become successful, regardless of the particular views of presidents who will come and go. We did want to ask you a few questions about AHMM. I know you've had a sustainability toolkit for some number of years. Um, can you describe it briefly? You know, we've grown from a small to a large practice. We're able to resource these things. So part of the conversation we've just had, I'm imagining we are, you know, in a sense, what we do is what the RIBA needs to do for us and everyone else is actually gather data. We've created our own uh, rows with 12 drivers that inform the way we assess our project's performance. Let's call it a building performance rows, which is anything from, you know, recycling to... Uh, carbon to energy use to the social value you know to, to essential building performance that is measured at every stage of the project and um, by the team within the office the design team working with the building performance team we've dropped the word sustainability because dr craig robertson i think quite rightly says it's too loose and performance suggests measures so that's a good thing um, and that team grows because Although there is a world of amazing consultants with a huge amount of information out there and knowledge who we want to engage with, we actually think it needs to become a fundamental part of what we do. So by the time we talk to them about solar load on our building, we've already been thinking about that from day one in the design and, and, and done quick modelling of it. So we've visited together your white collar factory uh, project at Old Street, which embodies many sustainable or performance principles, let's say, generous floor-to-floor -floor heights, self-finishing materials, uh, windows that can open at a high level. It was designed several years ago now, before embodied carbon was really a hot topic. Are there things you would do differently now? There are things that we do differently when we, differently when we finished it. The principles of that building are still good. I'm a fan of, I think I've told you before, caves, not oil rigs. So whilst there'll be some smart elements in the building um, moving forward, I think actually environmentally stable buildings uh, that, that can control the environment without technology, that can then be boosted by technology, are the way ahead. That way we're putting less in a building. We're also relying less on technology, which is a Jack Tatty-esque image of the door opening at the wrong moment We've done this before, but pretty much every building now we are looking at, can it be naturally ventilated long term? We will put in environmental control systems, but whether we design that in from the off or we have an adaptation design with knockout panels built in, white collar, you can naturally ventilate about 55% of the floor plate. Can we get to 80 or 90? There's 10% you might never naturally ventilate because it's, it's a different kind of intensively used space, like a lecture hall, although of course, We'll probably get there on that too. So um, yes, we, would we use concrete? We wouldn't use that concrete. We're making the concrete lighter. We'll be looking at cement-free, low-carbon concrete. So I don't believe timber's the future. I believe the right low-carbon technology of the future, and it'll be a combination of timbers and steels um, and, and uh, concretes and other materials that will come to the fore. 
and there will be hybrids. The most interesting talk I heard on this recently in a, in a post phase one evaluation of a project was an engineer saying we've spent the last 20 years standardizing, being efficient and being clever. Actually, now we need to be, we need to be becoming very, very bespoke. So actually all the beams we design are appropriate to their span, not to an economy of construction. That can generate quite a different architecture. And that's, you know, that's quite exciting. It, it's given the industry a, a kind of flip and a purpose rather than criticizing it. There's now a common purpose that's, you know, and I was also warned yesterday at Chatham House, concentrate on carbon at your peril. It's a bit like concentrating on numbers. If we're concentrating on 400,000 units of residential living, we might not deliver 400,000 homes. We might be knocking those buildings down. You know, carbon is a fantastic tool to beat ourselves up with to be more creative. But, you know, there's lots of other problems in the built environment that we need to be looking at. And as opportunities, not in a depressing way, but, you know, don't just turn it into a, into a single focus piece because you might miss another bigger picture as it comes up. Well, we've got one last question for you. Our sector is proving to be one of the hardest to decarbonize given its risk adverse culture, long project programs, as you've just alluded to, and powerful lobbying interests. What radical change can you make to overcome these factors? I think you need uh government to set the sorts of targets that the RIBA is setting that you're criticizing uh, fair enough you know and get them to keep being adapted and enhanced that kind of levels the playing fields so my simple line to any client for any building in the education uh, workplace or residential sector is unless you build a low carbon intelligent efficient, smart, enjoyable, flexible, long life building, you will have an asset that might be worth nothing by the time you finished it. And that you can't look at this year's standards, you've got to look at 2030. And if you're looking at 2030, you've got to look at 2040 and think that way. And you need to be thinking, if you can't go all the way, you need to think how far you can go and make sure your building as a core asset can be adapted. Well, Thank you very much, Simon. I wish you all the best taking this message to Glasgow because there's a tremendous amount of information in that report which will bring to the attention of a wider audience what has to change in our industry. And I also look forward to your House of Architecture at Portland Place. Thank you very, very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And I, 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 going back to that point about discourse, the questions are great because it makes, makes me think, you know, that, that's what we need. We need to be challenged. Our second guest today is Gary Clark, someone who has devoted his career to championing sustainable design. Since October 2018, Gary has chaired the RIBA Sustainable Futures Group, one of the Institute's numerous expert advisory groups, and he's the lead author of the RIBA 2030 Climate Challenge. He is a principal in the London office of HOK, where he is regional leader of science and technology. Gary is also an honorary professor of architecture at Queen's University, Belfast. In his role at the RIBA, Gary has held the Institute to account in a collaborative manner and challenged and inspired it to do more. 
Gary revised the RIBA awards criteria to align with the 2030 challenge and advocated for the awards to skip a year and make it mandatory to add light-touch POE data into submissions. Even though the first year of data on a new building is not definitive because any new building needs at least one full year of seasonal commissioning, if not two or three, this mandatory requirement for data is an absolute critical step in mainstreaming building performance. Gary was also instrumental in the publication of the Plan for Use and ensuring that Letty and ACAN were invited into the RIBA and the CIC, the Construction Industry Council, so that their voices could be heard during the many virtual meetings that took place during the pandemic and beyond. Um, Gary, we've just been talking to Simon Alford about the Built for the Environment report that the RIBA is taking to COP26. What's your take on this report? I've just read it uh, just the other night, just launched. Um, I think it's, it's absolutely amazing. I think it's um, in terms of a policy document of what our government and the rest of the world's governments need to do, I think it's absolutely just perfect timing. It should be mandatory reading of top 26. There's very little of the world actually, um, actually mandates or has codes on sustainable development. Then even the ones that you know have it, like the UK, we can't really pat ourselves on the back that well because, again, um, that one is that we know that there's a gap between, a you know, performance gap between actually the regulated uh, energy predictions and actually what happens in reality. So you are in your post as chair of the Sustainable Futures Group until this, uh, the end of this year. Um, what are your current work streams? So starting from the top, really uh, benchmarking. Um, so there's a whole um, group that's looking at that. And so linking with the whole life carbon network uh, there principally. Also UCL doing their stock modeling. SIBSI uh, is very much part of that as well. So when you say benchmarking, you mean across all building types? Yes, as, as much as possible. And I think um, the TM46, I think is something like... 200 building types. So what we've done is uh, is split it uh, from V, the 2030 initial was just domestic and non-domestic, but realizing non-domestic is such a huge amount of different types. So the second version is trying to split that up into follow the data sets. So we've got good data sets from departments for education on schools, uh, then we've got offices and then obviously higher education uh, as well. So it really is a plea to everybody that's listening to this as well is um, sign up to your 2030 challenge, and then really it's actually submitting the data to the RBA and SIPSI as well. And the more data we get, the better the benchmarking. So are, are there other work streams within, aside from the targets that, that you're working on at the moment? So the, the benchmark is the first one. Second one is retrofit. Um, so we're working with Letty on that and that guide should be released quite soon. And then really uh, I've been sort of uh, focusing on the uh, working with the Construction Industry Council. So it's taking all of the work that we've done and sharing it with all the other professional organizations. And then really at the end of this post COP26, I think that I'll be working closely with Simon in terms of handing over the baton uh, to the next team uh, and then making sure that kind of continuity of thought and that um, it's just that collective uh, knowledge and, and memory is retained and, and built on uh, for the future. I want to come back to the 2030 targets and why, they, why they're, they've been revised or as some people are saying, diluted. Um, for example, and I think I've got this right, 
um, the original target for domestic buildings was 300 kilograms of CO2 per meter squared, which aligned with the Luddy target. And that's now more been more than doubled to 625. And a scheme like Goldsmith Street, which has a timber frame and cellulose insulation, but brick cladding and concrete foundations, meets the original target of 300. Isn't 10 years to get to a target that's twice as leading? It seems that's too lax. We're in a climate emergency. So what? why have they been revised? So, so coming back to the first one, when we did the first 2030, um, that was done uh, very quickly. And we interfaced with the key stakeholders in that one uh, from an embodied point of, point of view. It was Simon Sturgis and Jane Anderson. Uh, we looked at some of the um, the modelling stock in terms of embodied energy, working with SIBSI uh, and others and the UCL on the actual operational side. So that's really where that first um, cut came. And then really, it was really thinking about the benchmark, the starting benchmark. So again, what's happened in V2 or the work last year is when the data really kind of was analysed in more, uh, more detail in terms of the body carbon uh, group. This is the whole life carbon network. What they found is actually really disappointing is that the, the, the benchmark where we are now is worse than we previously thought. But then the aim, the aim was to still apply the same percentage reduction because we felt that 50% for an embodied carbon was actually quite challenging. Um, so hence, that's why it's been re... So the benchmarks have been rebased and that's why it's kind of came out with the, the change. It, it maybe looks like it's kind of sort of less onerous, but, but it's based on the practicalities of when you look at the data, where we're starting from, uh, then it is more challenging. Well, it's the same a challenge. It's a 50 percent reduction. Well, that's really helpful. I mean, I think the important point is that we do have these targets. And as you say, we need more examples. And, and, and those examples, I was just saying to Simon earlier, we need as much of that information in the public domain as we can possibly get. I mean, the American Institute of Architects, you're probably familiar with COAT, the Committee on the Environment, they have have very detailed case studies on the American Institute of Architects website for projects going back 20 years. They just take 10 projects a year from the whole U.S., but there's a lot of very detailed information about those 10 exemplars. If the RIBA could do something similar, it would be a real step in the right direction. Yeah, so, so Hattie, just on that one, that is the plan. We've uh, looked at the awards criteria and really what it is, is really toughening up. So I think we give every, everybody notice that actually, that uh, last year you could submit, um, but then you might not, not have the data. The next iteration, so next year, you've got to submit data or you won't be considered. That is brilliant. Another question, can you briefly, briefly describe the plan for use for our listeners and explain why it's so important? It's this whole thing. We've been talking about the plan of work for 50, 60 years, but actually the plan for use, how we, how the buildings are used and operated has always been a little bit down the chain. So you've got to include the people that's going to run the building and the users as part of that process. And and listen, it's, it's not rocket science. I think good architects, we do that as a matter of course. Then what happens, you go through the process, you hand over those batons to the uh, the contractor, and then together, then you hand over that baton of use to the user back again. And what it does is it prepares you for post-occupancy evaluation at the end of the defects period. If you, if you start off and you say, I'm going to do a POE without doing a plan for use, you will be disappointed because your building will invariably 
uh, not actually perform. And so all you're going to do is shine a light on actually the things that you haven't thought about. So that's why the plan for use is absolutely critical if you're going to do a PoE on your building. Well, thank you, Gary. And really, you've you've just achieved an amazing amount during your three years, uh, three or four years that you've been doing this. And thank you very much. Um, and I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Our next episode will talk to people on the ground in Glasgow who are helping the city get ready for COP26. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcast, where you can also catch up with all our previous episodes. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us so we can build our audience. Thanks. Thanks.